0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question, in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, Go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be starting chapter 12. We'll learn about the examples of Christ's endurance that we know continues to this very day and will continue. Chuck, would you lead us in an opening prayer, please? Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for Mark and
1: his message to us that we're going to receive. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you are with us always, that you hear us, that you're, that you're there. This story about endurance, we just ask, Father, that you... uh Give us strength to continue to serve as best we can in our way and that you guide and lead us and that you give us endurance that we would keep on at times when maybe it's disappointing. We uh, thank you again for Mark and, and pray a blessing. And then his message, will be a blessing to all who hear it.
0: Amen. Great. Thank you. Amen, Amen. Amen Chuck. And uh, welcome, Mark.
2: Oh, good. It's good to be back with uh, all of you. We are starting to wind down our look at this letter to the Hebrews uh, written from a Judean believer to a community of Judean believers, probably still affiliated with a synagogue community somewhere in the Roman world uh, outside of Palestine. These were Greek speakers, both the author and the audience who used the Greek Bible, the Septuagint for their scriptures. That's the only Verses that are quoted, and there are many that are quoted, they're all from the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. And we have just finished going through a list of the heroes of faith in the Old Testament with great emphasis being given to those who could put their trust in a God that could not be seen with human eyes or felt with human hands. These were individuals held up as good examples who could accept the reality of the spiritual realm, God himself there and his truths that are spiritual and cannot be sensed in the physical world. And so after running down this list then, he continues on and refers to them as a great cloud of witnesses. We want to start by reading verses 1 through 3.
3: Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses,
2: Alright, thank you very much. So the author has placed the heroes of faith that we've gone through in chapter 11 as an audience like spectators in a sports arena who are looking down on the readers of this letter and they are running a race. They've got to get rid of anything that would weigh them down as they have to run with endurance, this race that they have before them. Jesus Christ is the finish line. That's where their eyes are fixed. And he's the author and the finisher, or author and perfecter of our faith. And so he finished what he had to do. And so these Christians had to finish what they had to do and again we don't see in the bible generally any loose ends we don't see any postponement of promises we see that when jesus came he took care of business he did everything he needed to and as we've seen consistently through this letter it's a done deal it's finished and a little bit of detail is added here For the sake of the joy set before him, he bore the cross. And when I see this term joy, I think of Jacob in the book of Genesis having to work seven years to marry his sweetheart, Rachel, and the joy that was involved in the wedding feasts throughout most of history when all of the effort and the hard work and the planning could be consummated or, or finished and we see that Christ did this not just because he thought it was a good idea to uh, to save Chuck Carlson or to save Mark Horton or anything like that no there there was a goal in mind which was the bride the bride of Christ and the bride had to be perfected and made perfect and For the wedding feast to take place, which is, has such a central place in Jesus' teaching and the whole, the Bible ends in that setting of the, of the wedding feast. In order for that wedding feast to occur, Christ had to bear the cross. It wasn't that he just decided, you know, to save Chuck Carlson one day because it was a good idea. He needed Chuck Carlson. And so he needed all of us to be building blocks in the new Jerusalem. He needed all of us to be part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So we we have a, a purpose and we are purified by the blood of Christ in order to do God's work. Not just because God was in a magnanimous mood and thought it was a great idea one day. There were works that were planned for us to do from before the foundation of the earth, Paul tells us. And God was obsessed with bringing all this about. And so it was like the goal for him was to get to that point where the living stones of the new temple could be purified set apart, sanctified, like they anointed the old tabernacle or the old uh, Ebenezer stone with oil. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit to serve a special purpose in God's plan. And this is a cause of great joy to God. I, I believe this was also the joy that David found that made him the man after God's own heart. It was a tremendous goal that God worked for towards relentlessly and was never sidetracked. It was never postponed. It never failed. It came to fruition just as he had intended. And Christ bore the cross because it was necessary to get to the finish line. He allowed himself to suffer disgrace from some of the most despicable people, in the world at that time, the political and religious leaders of Jerusalem. And he worked through all of that because he kept his eye on the goal before him. And he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And we we looked just recently at the parable of the pounds in the 19th chapter of Luke because it, also illustrates the same theme as this letter to the Hebrews that a young man went away into a far country to receive his kingdom. He left the kingdom behind to be crowned. And this is exactly what we see happening here. Jesus left the kingdom behind in order to be crowned at the right hand of the throne of God. So, readers, he says... Consider how he has endured such gainsaying from sinners. And again, in the specific context of Jesus Christ's earthly life, who were the sinners who evoked such hostility against him?
1: The religious leaders of his day.
2: Yeah, which John calls the Judeans. He uses that word, you know, three different ways the residents of Judea, or all of the Judean people living everywhere, or in the third term, the leaders, the exact people Chuck just mentioned, who were the opponents of Jesus. But we see in the Gospel of John, in all the Gospels, and specifically in the book of Acts, how God's very own people, Israel, became the enemy of God's plan this very goal that kept Jesus going, these people were the opponents. And so, oftentimes, uh, the term sinner or even the term devil, evil, it really substitutes for the Judean leadership in the context. I'm not saying that's all that those terms denote, but in the specific story of the gospel the sinners in this case are the leaders of god's own people who became the enemy of god's purpose and in fact these are also the enemies of the readers of this letter because just as we were talking about in our last recording Nowhere in the Bible is the concept that God's people are going to be miraculously spirited out of a great persecution. Quite the opposite. This whole letter is preparing God's people to endure intense persecution, which would, by the way, result in the destruction of the evil people and God would bring His people through on the other side without Translating them, you know, out of the world. So again, the the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is a, definitely a figment of human imagination, and it's a totally uh, unbiblical uh, concept. These people are being prepared for enduring intense persecution. It would start off with the Judeans, then it would add the power of Rome, and then ultimately, Rome would then turn against the Judean leaders and the entire nation and would uh, utterly destroy them. But they had to keep their eye, through all of these cataclysmic events, on Jesus Christ. You know, And remember that they've got Moses and Elijah and Noah and Abraham and Sarah in the stands rooting for them. As they are trying to get through this this horrible time of tribulation, all right. Any other thoughts or questions here on the uh, first
3: three? Um, Mark, I have a question. I've heard that passage in the, the first verse. They're talking about since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I've heard it used that you know Grandma and Grandpa are sitting up there in their uh, on their cloud with their harp, uh, watching watching you in the backyard. You know, it's kind of that idea that people that have passed on are watching what's going on here. I, I don't think the text is addressing that it just as they're, they're examples of people who have been faithful. What's your thought on that? Because that's, that verse is used a lot to, to say that, oh, people that have died are aware of what's going on here on earth.
2: Well, I might be sympathetic with that concept, but I certainly agree that that's not the context here. The context is on Those who lived under the old age and the law of Moses and who had looked forward to the consummation of the ages, as the author just said a little bit before. In other words, those were the events there in the first century that brought God's purpose into fruition. Like I said, Jesus finished the course. And so that's the specific context. Are these events that have such vast covenantal significance to do away with the law of Moses and to replace that with the reign of Jesus Christ, that is monumental. And so that's so important that when you bring any of these New Testament letters, but specifically Hebrews, and as I've heard it done over and over and over again, I think what you just gave as an example, is a great example. I've heard that exact thing stated, and I've heard many other lessons as if the letter was written to us today just to give us some tips and pointers for living a good Christian life. And the letter does give us some tips and pointers, but that's not the reason it was written. It was written during a time of cataclysmic events and of a shift in paradigm between the law and between the spiritual kingdom of God. And so I I think it slightly denigrates God's obsession with his kingdom to just lift these and try to make them apply to our present day without at least acknowledging the vast difference between what we're going through and what these first century Christians had to go does that Does that make any sense? What, what Yeah, yeah trying, it does. It's, it's a little yeah, uh,
1: obscure. But Mark, I, I think I see a little of that in verse 40 of, of the previous chapter, About 1140. Requited with the promise of God concerning us, the looking forward is to something better, that apart from us, they may not be perfected.
2: Right, yeah, we talked about that in our last uh in our last lesson. F F Bruce, one of my favorite Bible scholars, he paraphrases that verse as but now the promise has been fulfilled, the age of the new covenant has dawned. The Christ that all <laughs> these heroes look forward has come and he has procured perfection for all of them and for us, but they all had to go in together to the wedding feast. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly right. We're talking about the most significant events in all of human history in inaugurating the new covenant with Israel, as promised in in uh, Jeremiah 31. You know, in, in the last days, I will make a new covenant with Israel. And This is the most important thing that's ever happened in human history. And as we labor to point out, this involves a complete transformation of Israel from a physical government to a spiritual kingdom that comes and exists without observation. It's definitely not the government of the country Israel today in Palestine. So, uh, I mean, these were... The most important events in human history. So when we quote little snippets of it out of context and say, you know, that this tells us this or that about how to live today, I mean, it's a little scary to me that we're not seeing God's priorities and what his goal, the joy that was before him. It's so important. And I think instead of just applying this to help us have a better week as a Christian, if we see wow, God did all of this so that I could be empowered to do His work on the earth, then it doesn't just help us get through the week. It helps us to change our whole life's priorities to be men and women of action in God's kingdom instead of spectators in some mega church building. So to me, that's why the the context is so important. We all need to be men and women after God's own heart, like David was, to see what God saw, that the kingdom is the most important thing. He was willing to give his life for it. Not so we could have some mansion forever and ever, but just give us a hovel to work from, but let us work your work while breath is in us. And then we know you'll take care of us when our bodies fail. I don't know. I'm sorry. Maybe that's a little overdramatic. But I get super excited about, about this. That's good. Okay. Anything else? Let's go ahead and read verses 4 through 11, please. In your struggle
3: against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? My son...
2: we just heard how Christ suffered death from the hostility of sinners. His own people turned against him. And many of the heroes in chapter 11 had the same thing happen to them. Many of them were killed by their own people just for bringing forth the message of God. The readers of this letter had endured some kind of persecution. It seems like it was an episode rather than a constant thing and it apparently was severe enough that it involved them losing their property maybe being evicted from where they live we don't know exactly but they had not yet been persecuted to the point of injury or death but they are plainly told here that this well I say plainly told but it's obviously implied that that could be in their future that things were probably going to be a little bit worse uh, in what was building at the time this letter was written than what they had endured earlier on and so it was a time to redouble their efforts and to set aside anything that was hindering them they're being chided a little bit by the writer because they have at least considered laying low uh, and just becoming run of the mill Judeans and not continuing to confess Christ so that they might avoid this kind of persecution, but they are going to suffer something which is compared to the discipline of a father for a son, and the point is made that all sons receive discipline. If your father just goes off and leaves you, you're as good as, you know, an illegitimate child. The designation here in verse 10 of God as the father of our spirits is uh, unique. We don't see this exact phrase used anywhere else in the Bible. There is a an apocryphal book, the parables of Enoch, which uses that phrase frequently. But again, it continues the trend in this letter to emphasize over and over and over the superiority of the spiritual to the physical. The concepts of of suffering and discipline here are somewhat similar to some of the things we find in the book of Job, which is all about suffering. And in the 33rd chapter of Job, Elihu, the least wise of the friends of Job, because he's the youngest, of course, He makes some comments where he seems to go beyond his elders in understanding that uh, suffering doesn't necessarily come as punishment from God. There's also a little note on suffering in the 119th Psalm where the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And certainly the idea of following in Christ's footsteps is very active here in this image of an athletic race in an arena. Christ had to suffer at the hands of these sinners, and now you might have to suffer at the hands of these sinners. As I heard in a lecture a few summers ago, the groom leads and then the bride follows, And we see this in the New Testament. We see in the Gospels, Jesus going out with the message and being abused for it. And then in the book of Acts, we see him give up his spiritual body, ascend into the heavenly realm as a spirit and indwell his disciples as a spirit and then they become his body, and then they follow in his footsteps. And they go out with the good message, and they then suffer at the hands of these evil people. So when we suffer for the kingdom of God, we are following in Christ's footsteps. And we share a little bit in what he went through To bring us into his family. So it's definitely not like Job's friends thinking that suffering is a punishment from God for doing something bad. God often lets some of his most devoted followers suffer because they can take it and they can then experience even more of what Jesus experienced to bring the wedding feast, the joy of the wedding feast into reality. Any other thoughts on this paragraph, comments or questions?
1: This chastisement of the Lord sounds like it can be pretty intense, because the Greek word is scourging. He scourges verse six, yet he is scourging every son to whom he is assenting in the Greek. For God is scourging.
2: Yeah, it. I mean, again,
1: Sounds pretty
2: you know, if you look historically at the end of the first century, particularly through Nero's reign, the vast majority of Christians who were alive were tortured in the most horrible way and killed in the most horrible way. So it was a terrible thing. Uh, And God wasn't punishing them. I mean, (laughs) you know, it sounds pretty terrible to be crucified and then lit up as a human torch to illuminate one of Nero's garden parties. But they were actually blessed in a way to be allowed to share in the suffering of Christ and to win a certain victory uh, by enduring uh, what they went through. It was just a horrible horrible time and nothing nothing like it has really happened as far as to christians alone as a as a as a people certainly there have been horrible historical events where i mean like in communist china millions upon millions of christians were tortured executed as the communists consolidated power there but there was something really horribly unique about the suffering that that first generation of believers uh, had to endure there at the hand of the Judeans and Nero.
1: It's pretty vivid.
2: Thank you. All right. Well, we will try to uh, pick back up next time here at uh, verse 12. Uh, I thank everyone for participating here. We're going to see the the idea of an athletic contest continued uh, through off and on down to the end of the letter as he starts to wind things up.
0: Well, great. That was a fantastic study, Mark. We thank you for this.